Welcome to the Arena Decklist Podcast. I'm Jerry Thompson. Here with me, as always, is Brian Gottlieb. And Brian, I need you to do me a favor before we actually get into things and tell people what we're talking about. Where do you think this cast is going to rank all time at the end? I, I think this is a very good topic. I think it is possibly the most meaningful episode we will have done in a very long time. Now, does that mean it's going to connect with some people? Does that mean people are going to agree with what we're saying? I'm not sure about that. But in terms of like moving the conversation forward and not only for other people, but like ourselves, I think this is an important cast for us to do. This could be a really important one, like a top five episode. Damn. Okay. I was, I was thinking maybe top 10, top, top five is, is quite good. We'll see how we deliver. I don't want to, you know, I've now I set the expectations sky high. So obviously everyone will be super disappointed when they actually listen to it. I should have said it would have been one of the worst of all time. Definitely. That was, that was more my fault because I knew that you were going to rank it highly and I would as well, but I just wanted to get that hype train rolling. Okay. People are hyped. Now we better deliver. All right. So the delivery is this Jess guy, Luca Dex sucks. Yeah, I was wondering how far we were going to go down this path because, <laughs> like, Dude, obviously, leave it to me. Right. Obviously, when we're putting together this topic, there is a shared opinion among us that Jessica Luca has some glaring, glaring fault, faults, like just glaring fundamental errors in this deck that means it should not be a good magic deck. And I'm going to tell you, it's the best deck in standard. And I don't even think it's all that close. So there's obviously a lot to unpack where in the same breaths, I'm saying this deck is not very good and also the best possible thing you could be doing. And that's the crux of this episode, I think. It is terrible. It is a terrible deck. It's an affront to traditional modern deck building. And I agree with you. It is likely the best deck in standard. I'm I'm not sure that it's not close, but it's definitely the best deck. So... I guess we have to unpack this. These are wild, seemingly contradictory statements that we are making right now. Is is that what they teach you in lawyer school? Look, all those lessons are erased from my memory. I can't even remember what they taught me in lawyer school. I can't believe they let me out of there with a degree because I don't feel like I know any more having gone through that experience than I did prior to entering law school. Well, I just watched uh, all five seasons of How to Get Away with Murder. So, so you I know feel, more than me, probably. Yeah, I feel like I, you know, I basically just have the the lawyering degree already. Anyway, uh, before we actually get into that meat, I'm going to explain what this deck is and what it does because it's kind of weird, kind of new, and I'm sure people don't have the exact list memorized. So I'm on Goldfish right now, and I just pulled up the first list, and all the lists are, you know, within five to ten cards of each other. So this is a Yorian deck as companion. So you know, first of all, uh, eighty cards which is actually not part of the affront to magic deck building that I, I'm actually offended by. But Strangely so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so th- this this version has 13 Planeswalkers, four Narset, four Teferi, four Luko, and then one Elspeth, Sun's Champion. Sun's Nemesis. Sun's Nemesis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, the the worst one. Uh, right. some, some Shatter the Skies, you know, 36 lands. Fires of Invention to go with those Planeswalkers, Elspeth Conquers Death, Birth of Miletus, Omen of the Sea, uh, three copies of Omen of the Sun, which is the white one that makes tokens, four Shark Typhoons, four Agent of Treachery, four Shatter the Sky. So this deck's Lucas are either busted or terrible, where the plus one rarely is going to get you anything. But for the most part, you're trying to Luca away a token as early as possible to get an agent. Yeah, I... The plus one is very close to irrelevant. Obviously, there are gambit situations where you will go for it and try and hit. Mostly not going to happen, though. Not at all what the deck is contemplating. Yeah, so let's start with why this deck is bad. And I kind of want to hear from you on this because, you know, I know I know my opinions, but... Well, I think there's a host of reasons why if you are analyzing this the way I would have analyzed magic decks for the past however many years my career has lasted, 10, 15 years, however you want to define it. There's multiple points that I have problems with this deck. First, the glaring one to me is intense mana requirements and a decent mana base to account for those, but also that mana base being stretched along 36 lands makes it 
worse than it appears at first glance. To, to be fair, we do have access to a lot of dual lands. There are a lot of dual lands. So that means a lot of your lands are tapped, though. There are yes. squeezes in terms of Birth of Miletus and basic planes you're supposed to be playing. And there's just a lot of complications with the mana base. But more than just like the mana base itself, just think about the requirements that this thing is asking you for. It's got Narset on turn three. So there's double blue. Shadow of the Sky on turn four. There's double white. Luca on turn five, there's double red. So we're covering That's the, the triple double, as we yeah, call it. We're covering a big gambit of mana costs. So you better have a good mana base. And there are good lands, like you said, but still, those are the type of mana requirements where when you're building a deck, if you can, you avoid them. You try not to go down that path because you're introducing inconsistency in your mana. It should also be noted that this this deck has six castles in it, and you, you talked about the birth of Miletus requirement for playing a decent amount of planes, yeah. which means that you, you don't actually have a ton of room for a lot of the dual lands. So you could make this deck, uh, it, you could make its mana like quote unquote better by you know maybe cutting like Castle Vantress or something for more dual lands. I would not necessarily recommend it though, and I think you just take your lumps. Mostly agree for reasons that we will get to coming up. Another strike against this deck is just like, well, it's got Urian. And obviously there is a drawback to Urian. It's almost a laughable drawback given how good magic cards are presently. It's very rare that you are hurt in this format by playing 80 cards. And Urian is so powerful that it mostly doesn't matter. But if I were analyzing this under a traditional lens, I would say 80 cards. Obviously there's going to be problems. And when you think about particularly the payoffs in this deck. Like there are highly, highly variable cards. Omen of the Sun is not on the same axis as Fires of Invention. Obviously they do very different things, very separate power levels. So in general, traditionally, if you had a Fires of Invention deck, which benefits immensely from having Fires in play, you want Fires as much as possible. And that was a big pull. We talked about this, I think last week, just resisting the allure, maybe it was two weeks ago, resisting the allure of throwing Urian and absolutely everything. Like traditional Jeskai fires did not work with a Urian edition because it was so dependent on getting fires into the mix. Although we we did see those lists from time to time still. We did. And that is because Urian is such an incredible card that kind of doesn't matter and you can just get away with it. So that should be another strike against this deck. And then it's just like the synergies aren't quite there. Like you have a lot of really incompatible game plans where this whole polymorph Luca setup doesn't really align with the rest of what you're doing, which is just a traditional control deck. Like there's, there's nothing else here besides the traditional control shell. And in theory, if you just have a control shell, you're not going to splash into something like Luca into a weird setup that requires you to play Omen of the Sun, to play, uh, Birth of Miletus to max out on Castle Ardenvale, you're not going to stretch that way because if you control the game, you can find a way to win and you don't have to traditionally go down paths like this. It's just stretching for the sake of stretching and not actually necessary. So, for example, you could play traditional Azorius Control and just try and kill people at Dream Trawlers and you could play Yorian right. or not. You know, right. we've, we've seen both since Ikori and everything. And I think the Yorian the versions are... A little stronger, probably. Like you, like you said, I mean, you can get to 80 cards, have enough playables for sure, have enough dual lands. The main issue arises if, like, you know, something, some part of your deck is actually a, a key part of it. And in this case, you do have Fires of Invention, which maybe isn't entirely necessary to win, but like the whole the whole reason that the red is in here is for things like fires and Luca and that you know power spike is seems like you could just skip it right it, it seems yeah. like it's not at all essential maybe right so why is it there well have you said your piece on why you think this deck is bad did I mostly cover the same points that you see as flaws uh I mean w- one thing that I do want to add is that uh, Omen of the Sea, Birth of Miletus, uh, Omen of the Sun, they're, they're just not great magic cards. Playing four Asian Treachery, which granted is, is like playing three in a normal deck. Luca, where the plus one doesn't do anything. You have to set up these weird polymorph scenarios. It just seems like there are going to be a lot of games where your deck doesn't really do a whole lot because, like you noted, the pieces don't necessarily work that well with each other 
or because your cards are just weaker on average than your opponents or because you're playing 80 cards and you didn't draw your shatter the sky or important sideboard cards, you know, like there are going to be a lot of consistency issues. Right. And so having laid out this argument, why as magic players for many years, we see this deck and I'll be honest, like my initial reaction is just a little bit of repulsion. I'm just like, this can't be good. It, it just can't be. It defies all logic. It is not the proper way to build magic decks and there's going to be immense flaws. And there's not. Like I said, I believe this is the best deck in the format. So now I have to check all of these heuristics that I've used for years and years to be able to just sight read a deck and say, this is good. This isn't. Here are the flaws. Here's what I would do. Now this deck is better with just a little bit of my time investment. I needed to play this deck. I needed to understand it and see that I did not have the story correct here. And the game of magic has changed so fundamentally that my initial impressions were just bad. And well, I'm going to talk through a lot of the reasons why that was the case. Okay, that's that's fair. So I caution you to just jump to the conclusion that your, your read was bad. I think that there are a lot of instances as you know, content creators and magic players and tournament players where we have to shortcut a lot of things and we don't have time to test every single idea and everything. And a lot of the time we just cross things off the list because it looks bad or fundamentally it doesn't make a lot of sense compared to another certain thing that you could be doing in the format. Mm-hmm. And we get we get that right a lot of the time. Obviously we miss, but like we, we literally don't have time to, to test everything, especially in a format like modern, for example, right? So I don't want you to walk away from this thinking, oh, everything I knew was wrong, but I do think that this deck and its success should at least reinforce the fact that we should be second-guessing ourselves a little bit more often than we do. Right. That That is really what I want to get at, because I think the lessons contained within this deck, it, it's not just about this deck. It is broader than that, and it's a lot about the way magic cards have their power allocated these days, and the way standards tend to work. And, and granted, this is a snapshot in time. So I'm saying this as if it's going to be the rule at all points in the future. That's not necessarily true. You know, there could be dramatic changes at the next rotation. It certainly doesn't seem like it given the cards that we know to be sticking around, but it's something that we'll have to keep track of at all points in the future. It's just at this moment, it is very clear that there are some things that I should be looking for as opposed to the traditional hallmarks of consistency and a tight mana base and the slimmest package possible to achieve one singular, very clear goal. Right. I, I agree a hundred percent with that. And so when I first went to work at wizards, this was end of 2013. When I left wizards in the middle of 2014, it was still a ways before I could play in pro tours again. I think like six to nine months, something like that. And I knew that my career could have been a lot better up until that point. And I tried to redouble my efforts towards ultimately just making better decisions. And I think a lot of what you're talking about are are things that I had to go through. Whereas like mm. I had preferences and there were there were certain ways that I leaned always. You know, like I I don't think that there was a time when I played mono red at a pro tour. Uh, prior to 2014, even knowing, you know, if it was the best deck at that point. And in the the small window afterwards, like five years of me playing on the Pro Tour, I, I think I played Mono Red twice at a PT because I thought it was the best deck. Yeah, that's that's a great example of just being honest with yourself and letting go of a lot of the predilections you have in deck selection, card selection, play style, all those things. Yeah, so stopped playing bad blue decks, uh, more so gravitated towards strong green decks. And granted, my my success didn't really come at the hands of that. But I think like Zombies, for example, is like a good example of, you know, 2008 Jerry just refusing to play that deck and uh, just declaring that it was hot garbage, despite, you know, losing to it 70% of the time or whatever. Sure. Anyway, continue. All right. So this kind of brings me to the point of now singing the praises of this deck. And I'm sure some people have already left saying these idiots think this deck is bad. It's very clearly good. We're getting there. This is a framework. Bear with us. Uh, I'm going to tell you exactly what I had wrong about this deck. And 
it's a lot about, there's some obvious points. And the one that I'm sure everyone is waiting for me to say is the end game. This deck has the best end game in standard. And more importantly, it has the most accelerated end game. It does the end game thing seemingly before anyone else can possibly do it. Now, I, I think that's actually going to be the adaptation that we see made in response to this deck. But again, we're getting ahead of ourselves. At this moment, this is the quickest way to get to the best endgame in standard, which is kind of this combination of Asian of Treachery and Urian. But Urian is more to unlock mana on Agent of Treachery turns as much as it is to like actually blink an Agent of Treachery. Right. It's just about having a massive mana explosion. And for a few months now, it has been about establishing your snowball. And basically, you get to a point where you have your engine online, and now you're doing really huge things. You're casting Hydroid Crisises, your Nisses are juicing your mana, and the game just gets really, really big. But every deck was doing that. And the only realistic way to deny anyone from getting to the point where they do this engine stuff is to attack them on a axis that they aren't really prepared to recover from. So it's about mana denial in a lot of instances. It's Agent of Treachery to take your mana, prevent you from ever reaching that point, or to break up the snowball and bring it back to the other side. As opposed to just answering snowball with more snowball, it's an actual proactive answer to take it away from your opponent. And those don't really exist in present standard. And right. the fact that this deck gets to that point so, so quickly and honestly, so consistently. Because while we talked about all the inconsistencies inherent in this deck, the fact of the matter is it plays eight Agent of Treachery in the 80 card deck. And you can't really beat that in terms of just focused end game, maximum Agent of Treachery. I mean, like for a while, we kind of bluffed this stuff with Thassa Agent of Treachery end games. And I, I think that was a pretty good representation, but this is just the next evolution. And now you always have the Agent. Yeah, I mean, th this is also much different in that it's more explosive. And you talked about the mana denial aspect, but you're also picking up a land, which means that your sure. clunky deck now starts to get like really going, doing multiple things a turn. Or even if you just have spare mana lying around, you're, you know, cracking your omens if you want to, or making bigger shark typhoons. And with your opponent not having as much, not having as much mana to play with, like that's, it's going to be a huge problem. Uh, right. And then obviously you're always threatening to Luca get more agents, Urian blink the agents, whatever you, you do have these explosive turn fives potentially. And it, it also just snowballs really hard from there. Like most of the time when we look at like power versus consistency, sort of, it's like the, the power spike comes. And then if you deal with that, you're, you're in the clear for the most right. part, but, but this deck just keeps going. Yeah, it's the difference between a snowball rolling and an avalanche just blowing out the mountainside and the game ending like that. And this is the avalanche of the standard format. It's less about those snowballs and more about just getting so huge that there's no coming back from it. And that, that's hard because every deck typically has this explosive potential. But this deck breaks the rules and goes even harder. That That's the huge, huge, obvious draw. But more than that, I think there is a mode of protection that this deck utilizes that most other decks cannot where it's its ability to set up its combos are still based around proactive cards like it's moving in the direction of establishing its own game plan and asserting itself on the opponent's plan at the same time like things like teferi Omen of the Sun, Birth of Miletus, like those are the cards that are supposed to be setup cards. They're supposed to protect you so you can do this combo. But those are also cards that have meaningful impacts on what your opponent is doing at the exact same time. And that's given it this very challenging nature to play against that I don't think is really replicated by the Bant Urian decks because they are doing a little bit more fair stuff and they can't close the door as hard. And that's the piece I really missed where I was like, oh, the Bant stuff is just more consistent. It's just more measured. Well, that's fine. Maybe that's even true, but it just doesn't matter when this deck does its thing. Right. And that kind of circles back to the overall big important part of this deck and its, its success where 
I don't, we, we talk about this all the time as far as like being the smaller mid-range deck is just like not where you want to be. And I agree with you that Bant having things like Grow Spiral and uh, Uro, and they, they could always play towards like Nissa and Krasis when they wanted to. I mean, they've moved away from those things since then. But any sort of Simic deck was super consistent in its game plan and for a while was kind of just doing the biggest, baddest thing in the end game, right? Right. And now this deck does the biggest, baddest thing like a turn earlier. And now Bant is just the smaller mid-range deck. Yeah. And one thing we've harped on for what feels like ages now, don't come to battle with the smallest mid-range deck. And the trick in standard right now, the way you succeed in standard, and this has been true for a while now, and it's kind of taken me a moment to wrap my head around it. And I think it's why I haven't really had too many of my like pre-release deck building larks take off for a little while now. And I think it's because I've missed the idea of just do what's powerful and stretch and be greedy and go as far down the rabbit hole as you possibly can. Because yes, there there will be metagames where that will fail. And you look at something like even the uh, Winota decks, right? Which are very like linear, but ostensibly super powerful. And Early on in this format, I was like, well, I get why this is a good thing, but like Ether Gust will be there and it'll contain this and it's not really something I should invest a lot of time in. But that's not what we're doing in Magic right now. It's not about finding the deck that's going to have the long-term sustainable success over the length of a format. It's about finding that window to just burst through with a deck that interacts in a way that no one is capable of. And like Winota is a good example of a deck that is now finding some success because we saw Ether Gush just fall by the wayside. Did it have very real structural problems at first? Sure, but it was so ostensibly powerful that there would be a moment where this deck was able to succeed and you just had to choose that right moment. Right, and you know that's a deck that has its spike on turn four, but if you weather your way through it, like you know what your opponent's up to, you have the right tools and everything, it, it's pretty easy for them to just kind of like fall apart. Whereas the Luca version of cheating Agent of Treachery into play can can also just like play a late game while also threatening these uh, potentially explosive turns. And I think that that's also a thing that we need to pay attention to because like standard hasn't really had a deck like this uh, with like, you know, the, the splinter twin aspect of things right. where it's basically always threatening to do something powerful. So you have to like hold up in a counter spell, hold up in a removal spell, and then they just end up doing something else. Yeah. They put you in the vice very early and I'm going to talk about that more because one of the other things I wanted to do in hyping this deck up a little bit was go through a contrast with Bant and talk about how this deck differs from Bant. And I think there's a lot to be learned in the ways this actually outperforms Bant right now. As good as I think Bant is, like I think it's a fine deck. It's just not the correct decision because this deck exists and it does most of the stuff better. Yeah, I mean, last week Bant was number one and this week Jeskai is almost certainly number one, but that probably won't hold true into next week, I would assume. Uh, I do think that this format has the tools for the metagame to constantly shift as it has been doing. I don't think that this is like the best thing that you can possibly be doing in the format and has no flaws or whatever. I mean, we certainly went over a bunch of the flaws. Right. Uh, but I, I do agree that for for like week one of the format, dude, like this this was your job. You were supposed to build this. Yeah. And it's, it's funny how I, I'm trying to recreate the thought process, which didn't bring me down this road because like, I was high on Luca. I, I was very high on Luca. I thought this card was quite meaningful. I knew like Agent of Treachery was a really good thing to find with it. I probably yep. got a little sidetracked by trying to be even bigger than Agent of Treachery, but it's like, why are we trying to be bigger than this seven mana swing the game in an instant? And like, I was really high on Urian too. So it seems obvious that these pieces should come together. And I think it was just misevaluating what the true end game was. Like I, I was all in on this end game with the release of Theros, I was about Thassa blinking agent of treachery. And for some reason I backed away from it in this instance. Well, I think part of it is because of the inherent biases that we have where sure. you're talking about how to set up this awesome Luca polymorph thing. And I'm sure you could have found a similar shell to this, but I don't think that you would have then introduced Urian into the mix because 
it would have just, you know, thrown everything that you knew about magic out the window, right? You're like sure. trying to do this combo thing. And now you're adding 20 cards to your deck to, I don't know, like re-combo after you combo. Like, is that necessary? You know, right. And right. In, in some instances, yeah, it is. Yeah, it, it's just when the power level has accelerated to the extent that it has in present standard, you just have to check all of these things. Like my instinct would always be, this isn't worth it. But turns out these cards are so messed up, it's worth it. Like you should stretch going down that route to have your Urian plan as part of this setup and not worry about consistency anymore. It's about power, raw power in your deck. Yeah, and the the Simic decks have shown us that for a while where it's like, Maybe they play some Brazen Borrowers or they play some Aether Gusts or whatever. But for the most part, they just like weren't playing spot removal. And I know for a long time, it was just like, well, you can't you can't really do that. There are just like things that you have to interact with, right? Like Mayhem Devil was a big part of the format. And Simic was like, no, like I just do my thing and my opponent loses, you know? Mm-hmm. So why, why do we still have these preconceived notions? Yeah, and look... I have to give credit where credit's due. If if you want to pin the evolution of standard on one person over the past year, it, it's definitely Crokies. It's not even close. Like the things he has done since the release basically of Throne of Eldraine is when he really was firmly on my radar. He builds decks in a fashion that you and I don't think to build decks in. And he has been right. We have been wrong. Like he has done a lot of really impressive stuff. And I think a huge amount of that is just not having this... 15 years of baggage to bring with him and like taking a fresh lens to the format and just being like, what am I playing this small ball stuff for him? I'm going to do the biggest things possible. And, you know, one of the things I often disagreed with him doing early on in decks he was building was like an addition of Nissa. I'm like, well, Nissa doesn't fit here. It's not part of the game plan. It doesn't matter. Yep. Yeah. It just doesn't just, matter anymore. Just a busted card. Good. Yep. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he was the person who started playing like all the sideboard cards, main deck, right. just in mass. And it's like, yep. you can't, you can't do that. You know, like Noxious Grass was only 50% of the format or whatever. And it's like, yeah, it doesn't matter. You beat everyone else and you just need to kill the Roko, you know? And it's like, oh yeah, I guess that makes sense. Yeah. You, you have to focus on what matters. And uh, I, I think we have let a lot of past experience get in the way of finding the truth of these formats. And the truth is magic cards are messed up right now. And you need to push them as hard as you can and take advantage of that fact. I did say with Luca and the polymorph stuff that I was just going to let someone else figure it out though. Cause it was, and you did. Yeah. It was, it was a very short preview window and I had like cards on the two weeks that I was going to write about. And then I had a notepad full of a bunch of other ideas, like different cards to, you know, write about and build decks about and stuff, but yeah, just never did it. So this is definitely not where I would have ended up though. Absolutely. Sure. Not. Well, I guess that's a good question. So, if we're acknowledging this deck has some flaws, but still singing its praises and talking about how well it institutes its end game. I mean, do you see anything on the surface of this deck that you just are like, this is an easy swap. I think the deck gets better if I just make this one small change. So my criticism of this as a deck and saying it is a quote unquote bad deck is that this is just a deck that doesn't make sense in the scope of like 25 years of magic's history. Right. But I, I look at everything in this deck and it's like, okay, that that makes sense and that makes sense and that makes sense. And I would have to do a little digging, maybe see if, I don't know, if you could like swap out uh, a color or something. But I mean, other than that, I mean, I'm looking at the main deck and it's like, okay, well, maybe you want like more removal like Clarions or something. Maybe you're just supposed to be main decking Mystical Dispute. But other than that, it's like, I don't know, man, like these these cards all are fine magic cards, right? Yeah, a lot of four ofs in an 80-card deck. It, it's a pretty tight package, and everything's there for a reason. So I I haven't seen any ways to move it forward. I think like there's probably, like you said, other shells you can do with the same setup. But the cards I want are mostly in these colors. Like Stuff like Elspeth Conquer's Death is a big deal. And again, we're going to talk through a bunch of this as we contrast this deck with Bant. But I, I just don't see a lot of reasons to branch this shell into other paths right now. Now, I think this, the broader Agent of Treachery endgame probably needs to be explored in a bunch of other shells, and I'm going to talk a bit more about that later. Yeah. But for this particular setup, for the Luca setup, I, I do like the way this is done. Well, you want Luca, you want Agent, and I think that you want to be able to cast Agent. 
and fires awesome. makes a lot of sense, especially once you're playing Urian and white has like Teferi and the token makers. So that, that does make sense to me, but I still feel like it's worth looking into other things to see if this shell can be improved. Cool. That's it. But yeah. Talk us through, you know, this, this versus Bant, I guess. Yeah. So I, I needed to understand all the reasons why this was succeeding over Bant. And once you go through on kind of a card by card basis, it starts to make a lot of sense. And the first obvious upgrade, the reason basically we're in red besides Luca, fires of invention. And it's just about doubling your mana. And it's not even doubling here. It's it's tripling in a lot of instances. Yep. Look, this is close. You can double your mana sometimes, but now that we've stretched to 80 cards to play Urian, and playing Urian is also correct. Companions are busted. We're not going to relitigate that this week. I think we're all on board with these cards being absolutely absurd. They're pretty uh, good. But yeah, stretching to 80 cards, though, your forest density gets reduced in the Nissa decks, and you just don't have the same oomph. Like ramping with Growth Spiral is okay, and Arboreal Grazer, that, that's all well and good. You're definitely accelerating, and you have to in standard right now. You can't skip that. But Fires is just that turned up to a million, basically. And once you add Yuri into the mix and you have those turns where it's first free spell, cast Yuri, and now I don't have Fires anymore, and I can actually use my mana, the, the game is over in those spots. If you get to cast three Haymakers on the same turn, you have one. Yeah, and that's really where I like Fires over Nyssa. Like, obviously, Nyssa is making threats on its own, whereas Fires in some instances can be dead or, like, multiple copies can be dead or whatever. But with Fires, you're you're basically going wide instead of tall, whereas Bant is just like, look at this big Hydroid Crisis I built. And that's just not a thing that really matters right now. Like, if the games were actually more grindy than, you know, drawing four cards is is pretty good right but in this instance you just want to vomit your hand on the table and i think fires does a much better job of that yeah agree totally if there is a card that i am completely over at this point it's it's probably fires i mean i can make a case for a few cards in this deck but fires in particular it's just like so beyond what a card should be doing for four mana immediately pays for itself, doubles your mana on the next turn. It gets absurd so quickly. So enough of that card. Thank you. I, just make all these enchantments cost five. Wilderness Wreck, Frenzy, Fires. Just make them all cost five. Can you imagine? Every, every card in Magic needs a plus one to every number appearing on it, basically. Except Power and Toughness. Bring those down a little bit. Uh, what about Lightning Bolt? It's perfect. I mean, okay. what do you even bat an eye at Lightning Bolt in this format? Uh, it'd probably make the control decks better. I'd love with it just for some pure nostalgia. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, you know, there's like, Obosh considerations and whatever, but yeah. Yeah. I guess <laughs> that's a little messed up. Okay. You got me there. Next point. Contrasting this deck versus Bant. I see competition for the two mana ramp slot as growth spiral versus birth Miletus. And if we're just analyzing those cards in a vacuum, it's growth spiral by a, by a lot. We talked a lot about how that's one of the more secretly messed up cards that has come out over Very the past few years. Uh, has completely changed the face of standard. And yeah, it's it's more powerful than Birth and Miletus. But this whole deck should have a major, huge glaring flaw. And that is that you're trying to resolve a bunch of very expensive spells. All your stuff that matters is five mana, seven mana, even like if you want to say fires matters, then it starts at four mana. But still, these are expensive spells. This isn't cheap magic. This isn't like legacy modern style magic where it's all about very efficient spells. It's just huge, huge expensive things. And the only reason you were able to get away with that is because of Teferi Time Raveler. And this deck could not seek to do these type of things. Just the same way Jeskai Fires couldn't seek to do these type of things if it didn't have Teferi in the mix. So obviously the format comes about challenging to ferry and one way to do that is mystical dispute although we see very few of those right now the other way to do that is early battlefield presence and birth of Miletus actually fights on that axis as does like omen of the sun and this deck does an incredible job of just keeping to ferry on the battlefield which is so so frustrating as an opponent yeah i mean especially when you're moving into those turn five scenarios 
having a Teferi, even if it's, if it's still a one, it just means that you're safe. You know, you can just yep. do your thing, right? Like I, I would imagine that this deck when facing a two, two or whatever, like it's completely reasonable to just like plus instead of minus the Teferi. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you just have very good defensive options that most other decks are not taking advantage of. Like there's stuff like the blue white setups, but I think like that's the appeal of blue white as well as it just does a good job protecting its Teferi where a lot of other decks are just running it out there. Expect to get a small amount of value, but it's not really a linchpin of their game plan. They can't plan around it. I think this deck does so very effectively. Yeah, and as far as Spiral versus Miletus, it's basically just like, do you want to accelerate? And obviously Grow Spiral has a fail rate, but let's say it is just rampant growth effectively. Would you rather rampant growth or play a card that slows down the game and like, you know, also helps you get to five mana at some point. And right. I, I honestly think it's close, you know, but like for what this deck is doing, I think that the turn five scenarios are completely reasonable given what everyone else is doing to the point where like, you're, you're not really in a hurry to ramp. I think the other decks are certainly in a hurry to ramp because they're trying to abuse like Wilderness Reclamation and get to Nissa as fast as possible. And right. this deck is just like, nah, I'm, I'm chill. You know, I'm, I'm not in a hurry. Yeah, a lot of time buying mechanisms as well as just catch up mechanisms in things like Shatter the Sky. So like you said, this deck willing to take its time. I think that's a big advantage in the format right now. Also, the O4 is double duty. Right. Because it blocks your engine. Yeah, it blocks and then is a target. So it kind of does it all. Yeah, we were both pretty high on this card from the beginning. And obviously, it was a huge part of the Azorius control decks, which fell off really hard at the end of last format. But certainly at the start of the format, we're the best deck. Eh, Team Adventures, man. Like that that was all it took, I think, is just like one really heinous matchup. Mm, More about that in the future. Next up, as far as Jeskai versus Bant. We talked a bit about this, but just Agent of Treachery, Density. This is the end game that matters. Huge Hydroid Crisis, all that stuff. It can just become, you can come back from it. Every deck can snowball. Every deck has capacity for large turns. Agent is something different, though. It's bigger than all of that. It cuts your opponents off their end game. Uh, So eight agents versus one or two, really big difference. Agreed. Next thing, which I thought was a really important strategic point. And it kind of plays into this point of having an actual trump. Uh, Elspeth Conquers Death in the Bant decks. Nowhere near as good as Elspeth Conquers Death in this deck. Because this deck can do a thing. You mentioned the squeeze. And all good combo control decks can put their opponents in the squeeze. They make you answer the other problems that are going on or extend onto the battlefield and take your shields down. And then they can just blow you up out of nowhere. Elspeth Conquers Death and the second saga, the mana increase... That's special here. The fact that you can just end the game in one flurry of spells and you're cutting your opponents off of interaction in a very key spot. I think the Elspeth Conquers deaths in this deck are so, so much better. To say nothing of the fact that they can potentially return Agent of Treachery should the game go really long, return Urians. Like there's just such good targets here. And I have been very impressed by this card in general, but in this deck, it takes it to another level. Yeah, and there is redundancy in Elspeth Conquers Death and Teferi too. So it's not like, oh, I really need this thing and also to be able to stay alive long enough for it to matter. It's just like you're putting people in the squeeze and you have ways to just brick their interaction or at least make life really, really difficult for your opponents. It's like, what are they going to do? Keep four mana open for a Heartless Act or whatever under under the saga? And then you're just like, well, I'll just play out another Elspeth Conquers Death or whatever, you know, just not go for my combo thing and then just at some point they're hard casting agents you know so we look at like the inconsistency and how i don't know these these cards like don't really work super well with each other and then it's just like oh it's it's becoming like a little bit more clear maybe these cards Mm -hmm. aren't so bad secretly secret synergies all over the place and among those synergies i want to talk about the omens in this deck so omen of the sun not a card we're generally excited about. Uh, hasn't seen a ton of standard play. You really shouldn't be that into it. Zero, tip- basically, up until now. Yeah, and and typically, I would support that. And I would say, just because you have Urian in your deck, you're not supposed to build around all these really terrible things. And that was one of the problems with the first Urian decks I put together, was that I went really far down this path. And I just made a pretty bad deck. 
and I wasn't really getting the benefit of just having like a cohesive strategy. It was just all this stuff plus Urian. And when I played Urian, it was nice, but the cards in and of themselves, like if you play a bunch of Fibblethips and you just use them to draw more Fibblethips, you haven't actually gotten anywhere. Uh, it's, and that's that, that's, basically... That's the Thassa problem. Right. Yeah, too very much garbage true. in our Thassa decks too. Yeah. So we saw decks take a very hard turn from that and it seemed like they were almost playing incidental Urians. It was just about having a small benefit from this card. Usually you blinked a thing and that was good enough. And I like that. I think that was the correct first step. But when you're able to build on your synergies and when Omen of the Sun is protecting your Planeswalkers, it's enabling your Lucas. And now you're also blinking that with your Urians, to say nothing of blinking fires, which is obviously just this huge mana explosion that you get, you've got way better Urians. And when you have access to a card every single game, no matter what, you are incentivized to push a little bit harder. There's a sweet spot. I think we went way too far at first. Then I think we dialed things back too far and there wasn't enough being gotten of Urian. I think this deck actually has just the right amount of targets and you're really getting paid hard on Urian now. I agree with that. I don't think that blinking Omen of the Sun is a thing that is typically super impactful. So I don't know that I would even really count it that highly on the list as far as like, oh, look at all these things that I'm doing with Urian. Uh, I I just look at it more as uh, an extra piece of consistency for the Luca thing and gives you something to do with your mana and everything. I, I think it is fine, but... I definitely would not play it just because of Urian, and I think that is probably one of the first cards I would look at cutting, but I I don't have a ton of experience with 80 card decks and like, especially with this deck specifically, like, you know, how often do you actually want to draw a token maker, etc. So that would require me playing a lot more games with this deck first. I I think the synergies are just like so abundant that you're totally fine with it, even when you're recognizing it's not the best card. But you could, you don't have to focus just on the omens. You can go up and down this list. And as the Planeswalker density gets bigger and bigger, like blinking Narset is not something we were doing at first, but there's a huge payoff in blinking a Narset that's sitting on one counter. And there's just a stack of permanents here that are pretty happy to be reset. Even something like Elspeth's Sun's Nemesis, which is a card that hasn't really shined whatsoever. Resetting that card is pretty good and you can find an end game between just Urian and a minus Elspeth Sun's nemesis a few times. So I just like, I feel like this deck has done a very nice job of maximizing a card that doesn't even have to be maximized to be good. Yeah, no, that's fair. And I mean, there is a lot of incidental life gain attached to a lot of these cards too. So Yep. Even if they're not the most powerful, like when you do talk about like some sort of beatdown matchup, uh, like I guess the sacrifice decks are basically the only thing right now. But like you're you're gonna buy a bunch of time against them, and even just gaining two life is at least another turn against uh, Cat Oven or just like them trying to yep. burn you out. And yeah, once you start urining the Omen of the Sun or Elspeth, and like just gaining more life, you just you put the game out of reach for them for sure. Yeah. It's nice to have that reverse reach. I guess the decks in this format are pretty good at doing those last few points of damage with things like cat and mayhem devil. And it's nice to have a little bit extra padding to your life total. So assuming that you knew nothing about like the specifics of the format, do you think that you would like prefer to play something like Bant versus this or do you think that now, I don't know, maybe in the future, at, at the very least, you're going to like lean towards the more powerful thing just because you've sort of learned your lesson here? Or like, how is this going to affect you in the future? Well, you, you know how humans react to these things, right? Like my next step is to now overcorrect and go too far down this path. Like that's just how we do things. We bounce back and forth between extremes and eventually... I hope to settle in the middle and there will come a point in time where doing things the old way is correct again. And hopefully I'm able to recognize that, but certainly I will be far more open to the idea of just like, how do I shoehorn this singularly powerful thing into an otherwise safe shell? I would say. Fair. Yeah. I mean, for me, I think I've still been doing a reasonable job at looking at the format holistically and just being like, well, I could join like the the 
uh, fires Cavalier Scrum or the Bant Yorian Scrum, or I could try and do something that goes over the top of them. Like I identified that that was good, and that led me to Team Erec numerous times over like the last three or four months. Yeah. But I don't know for for whatever reason, I didn't really go down this rabbit hole of like what can I be doing that is bigger and better. Well, how about another chance? Because now we have established this as the top dog in the format. We know. Uh, if you look at like the Magic Fest online, there's just tons of this deck around. It was the most played deck in the weekend finals. Uh, I When I look at the qualifiers on a daily basis, it's like one Cat Oven, one Team of Reclamation, seven Jeskai right. Hyrian Fires. Well, this like, deck is fun too, right? It is. It is. And that's going to draw people to it. And you're going to play a lot of this coming up. So... What do we do? How do we go over the top? And is that the only option? Do, is it just an ever escalating arms race? And I will tell you, I think the answer is yes, because of the ancillary pieces that float around this format. Things like Teferi, I think they just incentivize this arms race over and over. Well, what I was doing recently, uh, so like Canister's bant list started catching on, right? Uh, so last week I wrote this article on Team Rec. I was really happy with where my list was. And that was right before Bant kind of exploded. And since then I'd made some changes to adapt for that matchup and specifically like Canister's version. And I think a lot of the changes I made to help in that matchup also help in this one. Okay. But can you talk about those specifically? Uh, it's, it's mostly just more interaction. Like I am still trying to do normal team erect things, right? Like I'm trying to accelerate play wilderness reclamation, eventually expansion explosion, uh, the number of shark typhoons went up by one, which is, you know, not huge, but is a thing. And it just meant that instead of playing the essence scatters and, uh, you know, like three Thosses interventions or whatever, it's like, you got to be a little bit leaner. You can't just try and fight creatures. You need to play mystical dispute main, negate, things like brazen borrower are maybe a little bit better. Maybe you want Legion War Boss on the sideboard to help fight uh, Teferi and Narset. Kind of just went back to how I was doing things against Azorius beforehand. But yeah, I mean, we, we talk about how this deck is mostly trying to resolve like, you know, four and five mana things. Uh, they, they start with Narset and Teferi, so those are scary. And if they're, if the Jeskai deck is on the play, you basically need Dispute or Negate to stop those cards because they're very, very good against you and basically just shut you down. Yeah, I, I think that's true. Those all sound like good adaptations. For me, I am mostly looking at some other decks I could pick up, but I also have some like single card strategies that I think are interesting. We talked about reacting to Azorius. There's a lot of the same hallmarks in this deck that I think you should account for. And we already talked about what deck drove Azorius out of the format in the first place. It was Teamer Adventures. I'm pretty sure that deck is poised for a comeback. It wouldn't surprise me if it has a big weekend this weekend. I would probably be like no frills, maybe even no new cards. It might just be the same old version of Teamer Adventures and trying to go over the top that way. Basically, it's shown proven success. And it's one of the few decks that can weather Asian of Treachery pretty effectively uh, and has an endgame that actually keeps pace with it. So that's the first place I'm turning. If you have experience with Teamer Adventures, I think it's time to virtually sleeve it up again. See, I'm not sure that that deck is actually good against this one. I, I could definitely end up being wrong because of the explosiveness that this deck has in the mid game, or at least the potential to. I, I think the interactive elements of Teamer Adventures should mitigate that to some extent. I think like Lucky Clover plus Bone Crusher Giant means you can answer anything that could be potentially sacrificed to Luka. And then if you're a Brazen Borrower, that's just clean. So you, you probably have to slant a bit in that direction, but... I think you can play the mid game against them. Yeah, but you, you still have the same problem uh, against Teferi, and I'm True. sure I'm sure Shark Typhoon has to change things somehow. But like against Azorius, no matter what they did, you could basically always keep playing. And against this deck, if they do their thing, I think you just get buried. I don't think that you have any recourse. Like, yeah, you don't have any busted permanents for them to age in or whatever. But again, they can just go after your mana base, and that deck is very mana hungry. Okay, we'll see how that plays out. I know the conversion rate for Teamer Adventures is very strong, but it's also very small sample size. Right. So we'll see if that gets picked up coming into this weekend. I'll talk a little bit about what I'm very confident does not work against this deck. 
I have zero interest in like trying to pick apart their hand with something like this uh, duress or agonizing remorse. I think they're just too redundant. And I don't see myself playing a lot of discard in the world of companions. There's just no way to actually meaningfully restrict resources anymore. And while you can take a key resource and against a deck like this, you'd be like, oh, you just take the combo piece. Well, this deck will take advantage of the fact that you haven't been pressuring them and just grind you out over time. Hard cast and Agent of Treachery. So I'm off discard. Counter magic has the Teferi problem. You have to have a proactive plan accompanying your counter magic or it will just rot in your hand if a Teferi ever slips through. Uh, and Graftdigger's Cage seems far too narrow for me. I don't think you're supposed to just account for Luca with Graftdigger's Cage. No, because they have so many other ways to kill you. Like They, they could literally just kill you with one ones. Right. And I don't think that there's a whole lot you can do, especially if you're just, you know, down a card in the cage. It, it just seems too difficult to overcome, especially with how much late game power they have. I mean, even just four copies of Shark Typhoon like that card can just beat you. Cassie Urian could just beat you. So, yeah, I don't I don't like that idea. I do think that discard plus a clock is completely reasonable if you're playing like one of the sacrifice decks. Uh, Obosh is uh, a, a little bit more beat downy. So I could see that where, you know, you're trying to heraldic banner and just strip either like the fires or the shatter the sky, whatever source of interaction they have. And granted, like one one's actually block you pretty well. Right. Right. That's my big concern. And they have all the incidental life gain and stuff. But I would think that given how mid rangey the format is now, like the flash decks could be good. Like mono blue uh, is a deck that's, I guess that's like the best performing flash deck. That's the list that I've seen winning the most, but right. Oh, so something like that. Uh, or even just like some, some green black, like questing beast drill bit beat you down deck. Like maybe just like green black adventures. I don't know. Just blow up their stuff. Attack them. Maybe any love for an Ember cleave return potentially. Like we're talking about blocking with one ones. Ember cleave seems to do a decent job. I've seen some, Obosh mono red decks floating around with like a bunch of one drops. And I, I don't like their vulnerability to the one, one tokens, Yeah, but getting big with Ember cleave could work. I mean, you, you can't cleave with the Bosch, unfortunately. Right, 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 right. But uh, Obosh on its own is, is quite good. You know, I mean, obviously uh, less good in the face of a bunch of one ones that can block, but some sort of aggro red deck has to be at least reasonable. You would think so, right? I mean, that's like where you always go when there's all this posturing and standing around. But again, the cards are so, so powerful. And it's been the problem with Mono Red for a while now where like they run into Uro and it's like, oh, this one card has invalidated the first six turns of the game. Yeah, and and, and Scorch Bitter sucks. Yeah, and I think this deck is doing a lot of the same things with the incidental life gain and then just the huge explosive turns undoing a lot of work for your opponents. And like they don't like playing into Shatter the Sky. It's not a fun card to play against as Mono Red. And now that we're maxing copies, I think things have gotten harder. Eh, you're not maxing though because you're 80 cards. <laughs> right, the new maxing. This is as good as we get these <laughs> yeah, days, 3.5 play, copies. Playing play three of things like Annex and... Uh, Runaway Steamkin certainly clock very quickly and are very good with Ember Cleave. So maybe if you're playing Mono Red, you just want to be able to play the Cleave and that's it. Um, but if you're playing Sacrifice, I don't know, you, you need some way to fight Shatter the Sky and uh, Call of the Death Dweller, I think. That's the card name, right? Yep. That card That card is a pretty reasonable way to reset, but they're, they're not trying to grind you out. They just use Shatter as a way to time walk you, you know? So they're, they're still always building towards their end game, which is the scary part. So you can't call to just like get cards back in play. You need to actually be getting powerful cards that clock them. So if we're playing Rakdos Luris, for example, I would be less high on things like Rick's Mighty Reveler and be higher on like Stormfist Crusader again. Okay. Dread, yeah, I like that are, change. Yeah. That makes sense. One final single card I was very interested in a way to potentially, I mean, I mean, it's not really going bigger because it's reactive, but the Mardu ultimatum actually could have a setup that lines up very well against your land. this deck. Take your land. Yeah. Yeah. You probably can't beat that. This deck's good. 
This looks good, man. You, it really to, is. You would have to like grow spiral into the Mardu ultimatum. And I don't think right. that's happening. Right. Uh, I mean, like you see the problem. It, it ostensibly does what you are trying to do against them. And it's the only effective means of answering their permanence because you need to answer everything. Otherwise, they will just reload with Urian. But you are right. They will do their thing before it gets the chance to matter. So I, I don't know how you account for that. Always clock plus pressure. Yeah, I guess so. I guess or so. Clock clock plus disruption or disruption plus, yeah. So, so there is one deck which is trying to basically do this plan faster and better. Uh, currently sitting at number one on the ladder, Urian Elementals maxing on Agent and doing like Risen Reef, Arboreal Grazer Acceleration and getting to that end game potentially faster than this deck is able to. I just think the problem is that if they ever put like mystical disputes in their sideboard, you lacking Teferi means that they just got you. Yeah. It, it also just seems weak to sweepers in general. And I like the, the elemental stuff. I, I just haven't liked. Uh, I, I love all the cards, right? Like I love Omnath. Right. I love Risen Reef. I'm a pretty big fan of Cavalier of Thorns, maybe not as big as you, but there's, there's just like such a fail rate to all of this stuff, which I don't think there really is to just playing like this, you know, relatively clean Luka game. Right there with you. Uh, I have played this deck a bit. I have enjoyed all of my games. It, it does all the stuff I like to do. And each game I sat down to play, I cut myself off a nice slice of humble pie understood that I just got this deck completely wrong. I misevaluated it. Uh, it's been a fun learning process, though. Fun to think about where I misstepped, and I am hopeful it will inform me in the future. Right. I mean, this this entire episode is basically us, you know, both looking at this list, being like, well, that's a meme deck. And then it's like, oh, that deck is crushing everything. What the hell? Yep. And then we have to actually, like, sit down and think about it and <laughs> figure out why we thought it was bad, how our thought process was messed up. And this is us also trying to hold ourselves accountable for the future, you know? Yep. Yeah. And if you take nothing else away from this episode, even if this individual analysis isn't really speaking to you, you don't care about this format, or you're just listening to us because you enjoy the soothing tones of our voice, maybe you can apply this lesson of just check your biases, check your presuppositions and make sure you're always updating your heuristics to inform you as much as possible. That's all you can do is just try and be better at everything. Like, you know, magic life, whatever it is, it doesn't matter. Everything that you encounter is a potential learning experience. And I don't know, I, I like being right. And in order to be right, you have to learn a lot, you know? Mm -hmm. So it pays off. Yeah, I, I have thought about this and I have thought about like what I would like my stamp on the magic community to be when all is said and done. And I, I think I honestly want to be the person who admitted he was wrong the most. Like <laughs> that, that comes with a lot, right? Like I have to say a bunch of dumb stuff, but like I think the ability to own it is so much more valuable than making myself occasionally look like a fool. Like your your opinion has value. And you should assert it. But in the moments where you realize I've misstepped, you correct yourself and then you move forward and you learn more. Yeah. I don't know. I, I guess I prefer my learning to be in private because I don't want to say, <laughs> no, hear me out. I don't want to say a bunch of things that end up being wrong because if I'm saying them, that means I believe them to be true, right? It, most of the time, if I don't know the answer, then I'm just silent, right? I'll just sit back and take in information as I can from reputable sources and for my opinions based on that. And if I'm saying a bunch of things that end up being wrong, it means that I've failed in doing that. Well, I, I look, I think in like the broader world, your approach is the correct one. 100%. I think in the magic world, everything is so nebulous. It's like when we do our top 10 shows, it, it's almost impossible to do those correctly, right? Oh, like yeah. It's just an impossible undertaking, but there's still we, value we in the discussion. Well, I thought we did okay this go around. I, th I thought I did okay. I don't know. You didn't want any companions on your top 10 list, but I was going to let that slide. Regardless, well, I they're, think they're that- only, They're only playing one, man. It's like, you know, they're not seeing that's that true. much play. I, I can't argue with that. Only one copy. They right? can't be that good. Yeah, nailed it. Uh, <laughs> Loophole. Got lawyered. Yeah. 
Yeah, you got me. I don't even remember what I was saying anymore. I'm sure it was not important. Uh, we, we suck and we say a bunch of dumb stuff. But Yes, we, but that's, that's part of being a magic prognosticator. Like you were supposed to make informed decisions, but we never have a large enough sample size to actually get these things right. You are just making your best guess. And that is what people listen to us for. They want to know our best guess. And I think if you limit yourself to only speaking when you're 100% sure when it comes to magic, you'd never say anything. I think you'd just be silent all the time. And thankfully, we don't record this show on Sundays. We're recording on Wednesday because Sunday might have just been like, Jess guy sucks. Right. It's a fad. What are people doing? And, you know, three days later, we're like, oh, we blew it. But like, yeah, we since we only record once a week, we never actually went on record saying that. Nice. Played around it. So that is it for the bulk of this week's cast. As y'all know, every week. We solicit the fine folks in our Discord for their burning questions and pick one to answer. The person we arbitrarily select is going to get mailed an Arena Deckless enamel pin. This is the only place that you can get them. And I was going to say something else, but I forgot. So let's just get on to the question. Uh, question we selected Mail. comes from Evan Appleton, who is gas. And Evan says, stealing this from the staying in podcast with Emily and Kumail, which I've never heard of and now kind of want to listen to. Me neither. Question is, what's the weirdest thing you've cried at this week, Brian? So there's there's several to choose from. I'm a bit bit of a crier, Gerald. I'll definitely uh, have a nice quiet cry every now and then. Basically, if I ever watch any video about a rescued animal, I'm going to cry. Like it's just 100% of the time. Fair. Particularly, I remember one this week about a rescued squirrel whose back legs didn't work, and they built the squirrel a little squirrel wheelchair, and the squirrel was just tearing around the yard in the wheelchair. Uh, so yeah, that got a cry from me. And, and the squirrel was just loving it too, right? Loved it. Yeah, just over the moon about the squirrel wheelchair. It's, uh, so it's, it's got to be tough though, right? Because it's like it can't it can't go up trees, and like what if. Uh, I don't know, the wheelchair like hits a pothole or something. Oh, it, it was not a released squirrel. Like it was a squirrel that was going to have to be cared for forever. But at least this gave the squirrel some mobility. In okay. Its, yeah, yeah. Yeah. In its new home. So all the animal videos are slam dunks. The other, like, I guess the weirdest thing was uh, my wife had to write something for work and it was like a very dry, technical, boring document. But I was just doing some grammar checking for her and nailed it when (laughs) when i read it and saw how much she had improved as a writer yeah over like the last couple years i was just struck with a lot of pride and it it made me cry i was really proud of her so i didn't expect to be (laughs) struck by a particularly boring document but uh yeah it it just kind of caught me out of nowhere so my my like two things are like <laughs> pretty closely related to yours awkwardly enough. I don't know. It's so, like I, I've mostly been staying off of Twitter and going deep down like the political rabbit hole and stuff like that. And it, it makes me feel bad because I'm not as well informed as I would want to be, but it's just like way too depressing. Uh, Understood. Yeah. So nothing like that. But there was there was. Well, first, first, let me talk about my cat, right? So I, I got these two cats and I got them from a shelter and things are good. They're doing great. While this was going on, while I was like in the adoption process, I was also feeding these three stray cats that lived in kind of like my neighborhood and my neighbor used to feed them, but he got kind of mad at them because they sort of destroyed his car. Okay. So, so I was like, hey, uh, would you mind if... I kind of started taking care of them because I like them. They're cute. You know, they're, they, they seem relatively nice and they, they just need sustenance. Right. And he was like, no, that that's cool with me. Please do. So I started taking care of these three cats and over the last couple days, uh, I've actually started moving one of them into the house. Like I, I took her into the vet and got her spayed and yeah, just, like all of this stuff. Right. And she was hanging out in a spare bedroom and I slowly introduced her to all the cats. And just like over the course of the last two days, she's actually just, it's, it's been like normal. 
for the first time where she's just like in the house. She is part of the three now. Like I, I just legit have three cats and I've, I've just never done something like that. You know, where it's like, I take this wild animal and now it's basically part of my family. Right. So I don't know. I'm just really proud of that, I guess. Yeah. That's awesome. Kind of working on the other two. Uh, One of them I'll probably end up taking in next week. I don't know if I'm going to be able to move it into the house or not, but uh, that one and I are also pretty friendly now, which I don't know. It's, it's weird, man. It's like, like three stray cats that are like, you know, six to eight months old or whatever. It's like, what are the odds that at any point they're going to become friendly towards humans? You know? No, it's definitely an uphill battle and uh, you have to work to, earn their trust. And I think it's something a hundred percent worth being proud of, uh, you know, taking the time to care for them, earn their trust. And like, obviously there's a financial cost that comes with caring for a cat and you have taken all that on and given them a really nice home. So that's dope. Yeah. So was, was just thinking about the cat and I don't know, just like happy I am that I did that. And the fact that she makes me happy and everything. And yeah, was just proud of myself. And then, the other thing was just like watching TV and it's like occasionally random quotes will get me and I'm trying to remember the exact thing, but it was like, I don't know. It was like this, this whole emotional arc, right? Again, this is the the lawyer show, which is like not really supposed to be super emotional, but. Oh, everything, everything's emotional these days. There's no, there's no such thing as things that are not emotional anymore. <laughs> Fair. But yeah. It was, it was some, someone, you know, talking to their partner about like how they are, proud of the person that they are and who they will become. And just like that, that hit me for whatever reason, but it's, it's like just very similar to, you know, the, the thing with your wife, right. Where it's like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not supposed to like get emotional over her paper or whatever, but like, there's a lot of stuff behind it. Right. Right. Yeah. A lot of growth, a lot of seeing her overcome putting myself in the same position and like, asking myself for the same growth and remember how it feels to be put in positions where you're like at first uncomfortable and then you rise to the challenge and just a whole slew of things to unpack with something like that. And, you know, like I said, the general emotional fragility that we all have presently just amplifies that to the extreme. Right. So yeah, I don't don't think either of our things are like particularly weird or whatever, but like, you know, it's, it's what happened this week. Yeah. I, I, I guess that's the thing, right? It's like, Maybe in the past, I would have treated either of those as weird, but it's just like things are a little messed up. I think it does us good, not only for ourselves, but like here on the podcast to just check in, acknowledge that, be like, it's okay to have excess emotions, feel a little sad right now, and then still bring to the table what is hopefully an entertaining product in the midst of all that's happening. Yeah. And do our best, whatever. All you can ask for. Yeah, and when we blow it, we learn from it. That's game. Good luck.